Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. As the sun rose over Benton Harbor, Michigan, 49-year-old Benjamin Purnell surveyed his land, the place he called the House of David. Benjamin strolled through a grove of meticulously manicured trees, taking in the beautiful shades of red and yellow. He listened as the leaves crunched beneath his feet and ambled over to a set of small train tracks. Smiling, Benjamin followed the tracks all the way to the small train depot next to his amusement park, Eden Springs. The aroma of cotton candy and popcorn filled his nostrils as he took a deep breath. It would be yet another busy day. Two years after its opening, the park was still going strong. Lost in thought, Benjamin wandered to his favorite new attraction, a large baseball stadium. There in the vast grandstands, he could still hear the ghostly echoes of last season's cheering crowd. It was magnificent and everything he had hoped for. Finally, Benjamin turned his face to his enormous Queen Anne-style mansion, Shiloh. His long hair and bristly beard fluttered in the cool breeze as he took in its majesty. There in Shiloh, he kept his most prized followers, the girls, the ones he would make sure stayed away from the evils of the world, remaining pure just for him. Benjamin thought about all he had built and knew it was good. He had come a long way from his parents' dilapidated home in Kentucky. Benton Harbor was a fine place for the 12 tribes of Israel to gather and wait for the second coming of Christ. The world was ending in less than a hundred years, and this, all of this, would be the only place safe from the wrath of God. For Benjamin Purnell believed he was the seventh and final messenger of the Lord. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we'll take a deep dive into the House of David and its founder, Benjamin Purnell. Benjamin believed he was the final prophet of God, charged with preparing the world for the second coming of Christ. In this episode, we'll explore his early life and how he eventually gained a large following in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Next week, we'll investigate the twisted secrets Purnell kept hidden deep in his paradise. We'll hear how the darker side of the cult eventually got out and how Purnell was brought down. 
Benjamin Purnell was born on March 27, 1861, in a small wooden cabin nestled in the wilds of Kentucky. He was the youngest of seven children born to a pair of poor farmers. Not much is known about Benjamin's childhood, only that it was marred by tragedy. When he was only six, his mother fell ill. She died shortly after. His father was financially and psychologically overwhelmed by the loss. He couldn't afford to take care of all of his children without his wife, so he decided he had to send one of them away. He chose to give up six-year-old Benjamin. He was sent to live with his 23-year-old brother, James Purnell, and his wife, Elizabeth, in another rural part of Kentucky. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Leaving home meant that Benjamin not only lost his mother, but his father, too, all in a relatively short period of time. He likely felt abandoned and searched for something else to latch onto. Psychologist Dr. Andy Tix found that it's common for those who lose loved ones to feel a loss of control afterward and, in response, turn toward faith. He said, when we lose control in our lives, we often turn to religion. Elizabeth Purnell noticed young Benjamin becoming obsessed with biblical scripture. While the family had always been strong Christians, Benjamin took his faith to a new level entirely. Elizabeth once observed the little blue-eyed boy walking around outside their home preaching the Word of God to the trees. He believed every word of it, and his appetite for Scripture was insatiable. Every day he learned more as he taught himself how to read using the New Testament. Benjamin's budding passion was fueled by the social atmosphere in Kentucky at the time. In the late 1860s, a large Christian fundamentalist movement swept through the United States. Traveling ministers regularly ambled into town, pitched their tents, and preached the Word of God. Their excited shouts and fiery speeches fascinated Benjamin and led him to learn even more about the Bible. The new fundamentalist movement was led by ministers Thomas Campbell and his son Alexander. The Campbells taught that Christians needed to return to their biblical roots. They believed most modern Christians were too attached to a corrupt church structure. In their eyes, Christians needed to get rid of the many small Protestant denominations and go back to being united under a single church, like in biblical times. In their sermons, the Campbells implored Christians to strictly adhere to the words written in the Bible. Conservative teachings like these greatly impacted Benjamin. As he got older, he carried his Bible everywhere, always eager to discuss the good word. But though he was committed to his faith, religion wasn't his only interest. In 1876, when he was 15, a local girl with chestnut hair and a thick Kentucky accent caught his eye. Her name was Angelina Brown, and Benjamin was instantly smitten. Within a year of courtship, the two were married. 16-year-old Benjamin and 15-year-old Angelina were crazy about each other, despite their young age. However, it was quickly apparent that Benjamin wasn't ready to be a husband or to start a family. Angelina later reportedly said Benjamin was seldom there for her. Perhaps inspired by the traveling preachers of his youth, it's reported Benjamin often left his new bride for days on end. 
He never told her where he was going or if he was ever coming back, leaving the confused girl to fend for herself while he wandered around the country. He always returned eventually, but it was never long before he slipped out again. Because of his mysterious traveling, he never took a steady job and didn't provide enough for Angelina. After more than a year of this, things were looking bleak for their marriage. Making matters worse, Angelina found out she was pregnant. Her only hope was that a child would suddenly ground Benjamin and encourage him to settle down and get a job. Angelina gave birth to their daughter in 1879, but the baby didn't bring the two any closer together. Benjamin still refused to find work and continued his strange jaunts out of town. Six months after his daughter was born, Benjamin went on another trip. This time, he didn't come back. For the next two years, Benjamin traveled aimlessly all over the Midwest. Angelina didn't hear from him again until 1880. He sent her a letter about getting a divorce. For her part, Angelina didn't care to know where he was or what he was up to. She seemed glad to be free from someone she saw as a deadbeat loser. That was ideal for Benjamin because he had moved on. He had fallen in love with a 17-year-old girl named Mary Stollard from Ohio. On August 3, 1880, 19-year-old Benjamin married for the second time. Still conservative and religious, Benjamin felt he had found a better match in Mary. She had just as much passion for biblical scripture as he did. For a few months after their marriage, the two of them traveled around the Midwest preaching until they reached the small town of Richmond, Indiana. In Richmond, Benjamin came across the book that set his soul on fire and forever changed his life. It was a radical Christian text entitled Extracts from the Flying Roll. The book was written by James Jezreel, who claimed to be a prophet. His work was heavily inspired by the teachings of a British woman named Joanna Southcott, who had died decades before. Joanna had predicted the world would end with the new millennium. She believed she was the first of seven messengers sent by God to warn the world of the upcoming apocalypse. Near the end of her life, Joanna told her followers she was pregnant with the second coming of Christ, even though she was a 64-year-old virgin. But she died before the baby was born. When her body was examined, a local doctor discovered the growth that Joanna thought was a baby in her womb was actually an undiscovered tumor. But the revelation did little to dampen her following. Her movement attracted even more converts after a sealed box of Joanna's prophecies was given to the Church of England. She claimed the box could only be opened when the nation was in crisis and only when all 12 bishops of the church were present. Over the years, several of her followers took up the mantle of Apocalypse Messenger, mostly sticking to the template Joanna had laid out. They prophesied that the world was going to end and that they had been sent by God to warn the people. Based on passages in the book of Revelation, these new prophets proclaimed that 144,000 people around the world would be chosen to survive the apocalypse. As messenger after messenger built on Joanna's predictions, the story gradually changed. Acolytes became to believe the chosen elect came from the 12 tribes of Israel. The fifth messenger, a British man named John Rowe, called his followers the Christian Israelites. 
he enacted stricter rules for them to follow, claiming a verse in the book of Leviticus meant that men weren't allowed to cut their hair. After Roe, one of his British followers, James Jezreel, declared himself the sixth messenger of God. He said a scroll had fallen out of the sky, and he had been commanded by God to write down excerpts of it to spread the word of the Lord. Jezreel published the writings as extracts from the flying roll, which eventually found its way into Benjamin Purnell's hands in 1881. Benjamin was spellbound by the book. He got in touch with a small but faithful group of Jezreelites in the town of Richmond, Indiana. There, he and his new wife became avid followers of Jezreel. Together, Benjamin and Mary learned that the 144,000 elect could survive the coming apocalypse and become immortal if they remained sinless. Jezreel claimed that afterward, they would rule over the world during 1,000 years of peace. They believed that anyone who died had to be tainted by sin, as only the sinless gained immortality. As a result, any member who had sinned needed to be cleansed in the Word of God. Tenets like this especially attracted Benjamin. When he lost his mother at such a young age, he felt like he had no control over his life or death. Now he had found a doctrine that proclaimed one could triumph over death through strict discipline. He became obsessed with the faith and, in no time, was a fervent Jezreelite preacher. Up next, we'll hear how Benjamin's passion becomes corrupted and how he fell under the spell of a more sinister messenger of God. Now back to the story. In 1881, 20-year-old Benjamin Purnell and his second wife, 18-year-old Mary, settled down in the small town of Richmond, Indiana. There, they joined a radical Christian sect known as the Jezreelites, who believed in the imminent second coming of Christ. Benjamin became a Jezreelite preacher, but just as he was trying to adjust to a new life, he was thrown another curveball. Mary was pregnant. In the past, Benjamin had run from his responsibilities as a father, but this time he was determined to be a better man. In the fall of 1881, Mary gave birth to their son, Coy. While Benjamin was spiritually fulfilled by being a preacher, it wasn't enough to provide for his family, so he found additional work as a traveling broom salesman. It wasn't ideal, but the job still allowed him to preach for Jezreel as he traveled from town to town. For several years, the Purnell family thrived as Benjamin took things seriously and provided for his family. However, the good times weren't meant to last. In 1885, 34-year-old Jezreel, the prophet of Benjamin's new religion, suddenly died in England. His followers overseas waited three days for him to be resurrected, but the miracle never came. Instead, there was an internal power struggle for control of the group between Jezreel's wife and several of his followers. By 1886, the group was breaking apart. The news eventually traveled to the United States, where it devastated Benjamin. Even so, he kept the faith. Despite Jezreel's failed resurrection, Benjamin was still a true believer in the reunification of the 12 tribes of Israel. For the next few years, Benjamin and Mary tried to maintain their lives in Indiana. 
1887, their family once again grew when Mary gave birth to a daughter named Hetty. But Benjamin was restless. He still believed in Jezreel's teachings, but he felt he had lost valuable guidance when the prophet died. Several years after Jezreel's death, Benjamin began to hear whispers about a new preacher, a former follower of Jezreel, who said he was the seventh and final messenger of God. Benjamin was over the moon. He needed to meet this new messenger, as he always regretted never meeting Jezreel in person. He soon learned that the preacher, Michael Mills, had formed a commune near Detroit. Benjamin quit his job and packed up his small family of four. They headed north in 1892 to live at the compound, also known as God House. Mills, called Prince Michael by his followers, was a loud, brash Jezreelite preacher. Since claiming to be a prophet of God, he had steadily grown his following and had about 80 members with him in Detroit when Benjamin arrived. Like Jezreel, Mills claimed to be immortal and without sin. Mills wielded absolute control over his followers and constantly reminded them that he was their ticket to salvation. If followers wanted to live on his compound, they had to turn over all of their possessions to him. This wasn't much of an issue for Benjamin and his family, as they didn't have many possessions when they arrived in Detroit. And it didn't take long for Benjamin to flourish under Mills' strict control. He quickly became a key member of the compound because of his devotion to gospel and his talent for spreading it. He even grew his hair and beard out in accordance with the fifth messenger, John Rowe's teachings. He was all in on Mills and his church. However, all his efforts would soon prove to be in vain. Not long after Benjamin and his family moved to Detroit, Mills was arrested. Some former members accused him of taking control over more than just assets. Mills was charged with sexually assaulting two underage girls. He had reportedly threatened to kill the girls if they told anyone what he had done. Mills' abuse may have been an extension of his need for control over his followers. As divorce mediator Kathy Meyer writes, this behavior is an attempt by the abuser to tranquilize the intolerable emotional pain they feel when feeling out of control. Instead of looking internally and trying to figure out why they have such negative emotions, they bury the pain, live in denial of it, and distort the reality of their behaviors. Some have claimed that Mills had been committing these kinds of crimes for years under the guise of a religious ritual he called cleansing. He kept the girls in his own quarters, and authorities believed he told them that sleeping with him kept them pure. The resulting trial was swift. Mills' wife was furious with him after she learned about the abuse. She and the victimized girls testified against him. The testimony was so disturbing that Mills was nearly killed by an angry mob that flooded the courtroom. The incident was only avoided after bailiffs managed to get the crowd under control. But by the end of the third day, the jury had heard enough and came to a verdict. Mills was found guilty of adultery, carnal knowledge of underaged girls, and lewd cohabitation. He was sentenced to five years in prison. The paradise that Benjamin and his family thought they were entering turned out to be anything but. With Mills in prison, one of his mistresses, Eliza Court, assumed control of the commune in Detroit. 
Benjamin and his family felt betrayed, but hung on to life at the colony because they had nowhere else to go. They entered almost penniless and had given those pennies away to Mills. Benjamin did his best to urge his family to have faith, but with Mills in jail, the group was bereft. There was no one with the authority to hand down God's word. Then, in 1895, while Mills was in prison, 34-year-old Benjamin claimed to have a sudden vision. He saw a white dove perched on his shoulder. The dove turned to Benjamin and proclaimed that he was the seventh messenger of God. Benjamin believed it was now his job to unite the tribes of Israel and prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. Benjamin excitedly informed the remaining members of the commune that he had been chosen to be a prophet. Unfortunately, the group was not convinced. Benjamin and his family were immediately kicked out of the group with nothing. The family left Detroit and roamed around the Midwest while Benjamin did his best to gather the 144,000 elect. But they were destitute, and it wasn't easy to convince people to join a group who were barely making ends meet. Benjamin and Mary searched desperately for a way to survive beyond the kindness of strangers. For seven years, they traversed the country. Benjamin never gave up on his message. He was determined to be a worthy prophet and to convince others to follow him. But by the winter of 1902, 41-year-old Benjamin Purnell and his family were in worse shape than ever before. They stumbled into the small, snowy town of Fostoria, Ohio, wearing shoes that were falling apart. There, a woman named Cora Mooney took pity on the family and granted them a place to stay. Benjamin told Mooney that he was the prophesied seventh messenger of Christ. Over the years, he had perfected his pitch, and Mooney believed Benjamin. She became one of his most devoted followers. Benjamin had learned from Mills how a group could fall apart if its teachings weren't written down. In Fostoria, Benjamin spent months writing out his message, now that he had a safe place to stay. He called it the Star of Bethlehem. With help from Mooney, Benjamin also began preaching at a local church he called the Israelite House of David. For the first time, he began to attract a small following for himself. Soon, Benjamin was preaching the word of the Jezreelites to a congregation that hung on his every word. For the first time in seven years, his family wasn't destitute. For a while, he was overjoyed. His daughter, Hetty, now 16 years old, took a job in a local fireworks factory to help support the family further. But even with some moderate success, Benjamin wasn't looking to settle down. He had been in contact with another group of Jezreelites in western Michigan and hoped to move up there with them once he put some money together. His dream was to find a plot of land where the 144,000 chosen people could gather and ride out the apocalypse. On February 17, 1903, Benjamin stood in front of his congregation at the House of David, giving a fiery sermon. He extended his arms and told them about the 12 tribes of Israel. He warned them of the end of the world, of fire, of brimstone, and hordes of demons. Just as he reached the crescendo of a sermon, the world outside shook violently. A deafening blast rang out throughout the town, and the small church rocked on its foundation. 
The startled congregation ran outside to see what had happened. From the front steps of the church, they saw the smoke rising from the fireworks factory, the same place Benjamin's 16-year-old daughter, Hetty, was working. The wooden structure caught fire as first responders raced to the scene. Unfortunately, there wasn't much they could do to contain the blaze. The fire was intense and took hours to extinguish. When authorities finally entered the burned-out shell of the building, they found eight charred corpses. One of them was Hetty Purnell. The brash minister, who never seemed to be at a loss for words, was suddenly speechless. He had spent years proclaiming that only those tainted by sin were doomed to die. Now he was forced to look upon the lifeless body of his only daughter. Up next, we'll hear how Benjamin coped with Hetty's death and how he built his House of David. Now back to the story. On February 17, 1903, 42-year-old Benjamin Purnell was giving an apocalyptic sermon at his church in the small town of Fostoria, Ohio. Just as he was telling his followers about the coming end times, he was interrupted by a large blast outside. A nearby fireworks factory had exploded. Eight citizens died in the blast, including Benjamin's 16-year-old daughter, Hetty. Grief consumed Benjamin, and he searched desperately to find some greater purpose in the senseless loss of his daughter. A joint study between the University of Georgia and the University of Wisconsin found that parents experiencing grief over the loss of a child are helped when they find a renewed purpose in their life. According to the study, clinical approaches have emphasized the need to help the survivor find meaning and a sense of purpose for both the deceased's life and his or her own life in order to regain a sense of well-being. For Benjamin, as always, this renewed purpose came from his faith. He clung tighter than ever to the belief that he was the seventh messenger of God, foretold in the book of Revelation. He believed he was on earth to reunite the 12 tribes of Israel and bring about the second coming of Christ. However, a key part of his beliefs had been that only those who were sinful could truly die. For years, he had proclaimed that he and his family would live forever because they were one of the 144,000 from the 12 reunited tribes of Israel. Because of this staunch belief, he and Mary refused to pick up their daughter's body and bury her. Jezreelites were forbidden from having anything to do with the dead or the sinful in order to stay pure. His conflicting emotions and overwhelming grief caused Benjamin to lash out. But instead of blaming the factors that caused the blast, he lambasted his dead daughter. With his faith, it was the only way he could reconcile her passing. In a sermon at his church, he reportedly said, She doubted me. She harbored a scorpion in her breast. This is her punishment. Many in town, particularly the families of the other victims, were upset by how Benjamin responded to the death of Hetty. Some town members even threw stones at his church in retaliation. Within a month of Hetty's death, Benjamin, his wife, and their 21-year-old son, Coy, left Ohio. They headed to western Michigan along with four faithful followers in search of a plot of land for the chosen 144,000. 
On March 17, 1903, they arrived in the small town of Benton Harbor, Michigan. They were met by a small group of other Jezreelites they had previously been in contact with. Among those who welcomed the Purnells were two brothers named Louis and Albert Boschke. They were local carriage makers who just years earlier had made a name for themselves when they produced one of the first ever gasoline-powered carriages. They had gotten their hands on Benjamin's manuscript, The Star of Bethlehem, and were convinced that he was the true seventh messenger of God. The Boschke brothers were instrumental in getting Benjamin and his family back on their feet. They provided him and all of his followers a place to stay when they first arrived in town. And they did much more than that. In total, the brothers donated about $400,000 to Benjamin and the House of David. With the money, during his first year in Benton Harbor, Benjamin started construction on a large building he referred to as the Ark. The Ark was a three-story complex that housed several members, church offices, and a large printing press. Benjamin produced more copies of the Star of Bethlehem, as well as a church newsletter called Shiloh's Messenger of Wisdom. He had learned from previous Jezreelites' prophets that the key to building a following lay in consolidating one's control. So Benjamin enforced strict rules for all those who lived at the house of David. He promised immortality, but the only way to obtain it was through absolute purity. As Michael Mills had done, Benjamin asked all his followers to give up all their earthly possessions to the house of David. He also added plenty of new rules that the chosen were expected to follow. He declared there would be no sex at the house of David, even between married couples. He felt that it only led to lust, which was a sin. Members also had to keep a vegetarian diet because Benjamin considered eating meat to be a sin. In addition, House of David members abstained from alcohol and cursing. Men were also expected to let their hair grow long in accordance with the rules of the supposed fifth messenger, John Rowe. Despite the strict rules, Benjamin's fiery passion and deep knowledge of scripture allowed the group to thrive. While they started with around two dozen followers, after less than a year in Michigan, their numbers approached nearly 100. Benjamin grew his followers by recruiting locally first. He then relied on locals to distribute copies of The Star of Bethlehem nationwide. The money that the Boschke brothers gave Benjamin was put to use spreading the word and accommodating his increasing numbers. As the House of David continued to grow, they gained notoriety for their long hair and strange customs. Benjamin sought to capitalize on his reputation by taking his message worldwide. In November of 1904, 43-year-old Benjamin and his wife took a trip to Australia. Benjamin and Mary went from Sydney to Melbourne in a four-month campaign to canvas as many towns as possible. It was a smashing success. Benjamin gave lectures to packed halls and recruited several prominent Australian businessmen who helped fund the commune back in the U.S. In total, Benjamin gained around 80 new members, including a full brass band who followed him all the way back to the United States. In February of 1905, the group returned to Michigan and marched through town playing music on their way to the new Eden. It was a jubilant time for the House of David. In three short years, Benjamin's life had completely turned around. 
He had gone from living penniless on the road to owning a dozen acres of land and a fully furnished house. But he wasn't one to sit around and be content with his current success. Using money donated from his followers, he continued to buy more land and construct additional buildings to house his new converts. With each new member, he made more and more money as he absorbed their assets. But that was only the beginning of a member's contribution. After joining, each follower was expected to become an integral part of life at the compound. Everyone was given a job at the church, which was increasingly beginning to look like a business. Members operated the printing press, built new living quarters, and most importantly, spread Benjamin's message. In 1906, Benjamin sent out several groups of missionaries to crisscross the United States and attract new converts. Meanwhile, he remained in Benton Harbor, attracting new visitors to his church with flyers and advertisements. His tactics worked. By 1907, almost 400 people were living at the House of David. Word got around about the commune, and onlookers started coming by just out of curiosity. It was full of strange-looking yet pleasant people. Benjamin was always accommodating, but there wasn't much for spectators to do at the House of David, other than listen to a sermon or look around. He realized that if he could give the visitors a reason to stick around, he might end up attracting more followers. After all, the longer people remained at the House of David, the more likely they were to hear his message, and the more likely they were to donate. Benjamin started out small. He built an ice cream parlor first. As the months went on, he slowly added more attractions. Eventually, he had his followers build an aviary and a cage for monkeys. By 1908, Benjamin had an entire amusement park on the House of David grounds, which he advertised as Eden Springs. In the following years, more members joined his compound, and the amusement park grew. He added a miniature train, a bandstand, and a carousel. It became an immensely popular local attraction. Many people grew up going to Eden Springs and developed fond memories of the House of David. It was a gorgeous place to visit, with tree-lined pathways, good food, and fun rides. Families from Chicago frequently made the two-and-a-half-hour trip out to the small community in Michigan. It seemed Benjamin was just as enterprising as he was religious. Soon, the amusement park spread his reputation more than his spiritual message had ever done. Even so, he kept his beliefs and continued declaring that he was the final messenger of God. By 1910, he had nearly a thousand members living at the House of David and moved into a new, large house on the grounds that he called Shiloh. Benjamin had almost everything he'd ever wanted, yet he still wasn't content. He was always searching for new, profitable ways to spread his message. One day, while walking through the grounds of the House of David, he noticed a group of his long-haired followers playing baseball. They were athletic and fast. Their prowess gave Benjamin an idea that would spread the House of David name all over the United States. But behind his shrewd business sense and light-hearted publicity stunts, Benjamin hid the worst parts of himself. Locked away in the deepest rooms of Shiloh, he kept his darkest secrets. The young girls of his followers he had taken a liking to.
Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with part two of The House of David, where we'll follow the meteoric rise of the Cults baseball team and Benjamin's sudden fall from grace. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker with writing assistance by Drew Cole and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.